Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Professor Stephen Mulberger, who is an absolute legend in the historical martial arts community, especially around the areas of medieval combat. And he's also a 50-year veteran of the SCA. His books are foundationally important for anyone who is studying medieval martial arts, and they include Deeds of Arms, Jousts and Tournaments, Formal Combats in the 14th Century, Royal Jousts, Murder, Rape and Treason, Judicial Combats in the Late Middle Ages, and all sorts of other titles too. He's an extraordinary book-producing machine. I should also mention we had a couple of technical issues with this show. Uh, Firstly, we had connectivity issues with the internet, so I prefer to focus on the miracle of the fact that he's in his house in Canada and I'm in my house in Ipswich and we can still actually have a conversation rather than the fact that the conversation isn't seamlessly perfect. So because of the uh, delays in audio getting from one side of the Atlantic to the other, uh, sometimes the conversation is a bit disjointed. So we don't hear each other's answers or questions or what have you. Um, We have done what we can to tidy it up. And many thanks to Gethin Edwards, audio engineer Supremo, for his help cleaning things up. Um, But there are still some, well, you'll you'll hear it in the recording. Also, Professor Mulberger has Parkinson's disease, which means it sometimes interferes with his speech and occasionally interferes with his ability to find a word. So just bear that in mind as you're listening. So without further ado, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So, whereabouts in the world are you? I live in Windsor, Ontario, which is right across the river from Detroit. Well, I have to approve of anybody living in a place called Windsor. Yes, I think it's quite remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you've obviously been into medieval history for a really long time. What what drew you into it? Well, I would say that uh, for an early adopter of sword work in the modern day, anybody who says that doesn't put Tolkien at the top of their list is a bit of a freak. Uh, I, uh, I, in, in the mid-60s, I was a teenager. My aunt lent me the, a copy of The Hobbit, which had just come out in North America in paperback. And I thought, oh, this is pretty good. I'll, I'll pick up the next one, which is The Lord of the Rings three-book set, of course. And I I was hooked yeah. on that as uh, and, and about the same time as I was getting hooked on Tolkien, people out in the, the Bay Area of California were uh, thinking about recreating some aspects of the Middle Ages. They started out by having a, a tournament in their backyard, and they said, "Let's do it again afterwards." And they're still doing it again, even though we're. Uh, because of the the plague, where it kind of slowed up, but uh, it's uh, so that was my uh, my introduction to it was. Uh, I also was a science fiction fan, and uh, because of that, I got information about 
various fanish activities. And of course, Tolkien was one of them. People who uh, liked uh, fantasy had been kind of starved in the previous decade or so. And uh, when the unbelievably good Tolkien material came out, uh, people just piled into it. There was nothing comparable. And uh, so people who are both science... Yeah, that's a, he was a pioneer, wasn't yes. he? Yes. And, and uh, he was, uh, it was kind of uh, a, a coincidence that uh, people were doing this uh, on uh, recreating stuff uh, just at the time when Tolkien's uh, books were coming out in North America for the first time. They came out in the 50s, The Lord of the Rings, but they, they didn't get reprinted in, in North America. And then suddenly, people, I mean, it's the baby boomer kind of a, a situation. There are a lot of baby boomers around, uh, some of them uh, interested in doing really odd things that their, their comrades didn't appreciate or their parents didn't appreciate or their teachers didn't appreciate. And, uh, well, Tolkien was it. Uh, and uh, people in science fiction fandom who might not have been real fantasy fans originally became uh, the core of, of what would become the SCA because they, they became because they had a technology that was far ahead of any other fanish material. They had the, the newsletters, uh, there was a whole network of people talking about their favorite books to people in Washington State or Florida or England or but mostly mostly in the United States. Uh, they had that technology. The, the mimeograph machine was the, the thing. Ah, okay. And uh, that, because that, that there were people already in fandom, science fiction fandom, who were big on using... Uh, the mimeograph to talk to their friends and draw pictures and send them out. And uh, that, uh, that gave a basis for a mass movement. Uh, it very quickly became a mass movement. Wow. So just for people listening who are, shall we say, under the age of 40, um, a mimeograph machine is basically like a photocopier, isn't it? Yes. There's there's yeah. uh, uh, there's several different technologies, and they were they were office machines. That's what the, the people who built right. them were building them for offices, and they didn't have people did not have access to Xerox machines yet. They, they were right. just coming in, and they were very expensive Xerox machines. So mm -hmm. it took a while for it to catch on. Uh, but there was, there it was, you know, if people were interested in talking to people in, uh, in Nevada who happened to share their love for this rather eccentric book or set of books, uh, it was possible to do it without, without breaking your, your bank. So the birth of the SCA and its spread is basically down to the technology of being able to produce newsletters cheaply. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely, it was difficult. That's Actually, it, it didn't. It wasn't easy to communicate even with the, my, my uh, the machines. Sure. It was, uh, 
I mean, people, okay, so let's say he was somebody my age at that time, 1966. I, I got a hold of the books and I was got a hold of newsletters from various Spanish organizations. And uh, it was not cheap to, to, to take part even on that level. Right. People, people were, I mean, we, we think looking back on it, boy, we really were uh, uh, privileged to live in such a, such a, it, it, we were lucky to, to have money in our pockets to spend on things like this, but we didn't have a lot of money. You know, yeah. first class stamp in the United States was, I believe, three cents at that point and went on up to five cents. And if you had forty people on your mailing list, you might not have you might have to scrape along. Uh, even you know, we're not talking about people who are poor here by any by, by no means are they poor. An economic situation later on, in fairly short order, people did were able to afford more. Uh, but again, it was uh, an eccentric bunch of people doing odd stuff. With oddball tools, uh, the situation of economics was good enough that uh, by the early 70s, there really were a lot of people who were interested in uh, in the SCA. Now, let me explain how I ran into the SCA. Sure. Uh, I I went to a World, World Science Fiction Convention in New York in 1967. I went to University at Michigan State in uh, 1968. I already knew about the SCA. I wasn't necessarily all that interested. I was interested in the books. I was interested in, the, in, in Middle Earth. So I, I say one of the first days I was on campus uh, in, in 1968, my, my first year at university, I was walking down a hallway and there was a poster on the wall. And I said, Bilbo's birthday party. Oh, my God. Because they're, they, and I said, oh, my God, this is fabulous. And I, I went back to my, uh, my dorm and I talked to uh, the other uh, uh, Tolkien fan that I'd run into so far. He couldn't convince him to take a chance on these people. But uh, I went... Uh, there was a meeting, a, a bunch of people got together, none of whom I knew, uh, uh, and we went, walked off from uh, that area, gathering area to a woods area right off the campus, very close actually. So we, we were walking at, at early evening, eventually at night, somebody had set up a, a circle with uh, fires, to be lit, and then they, the people who were there were mostly knew each other from the previous year, and they are a very creative bunch, and they started singing songs of, of Middle Earth. Uh, oh wow! And it was unbelievable. I, I was I was absolutely in heaven. Now the thing is, is that this did not transfer into fighting or uh, the SCA or any of this stuff. Some people knew about the SCA. Two people were, who were at that uh, Bilbo's birthday party had actually been in Berkeley uh, at the beginning of September the same year going to the World Science Fiction Convention where there was a tournament. Oh, wow. 
and people people from all over North America had the chance uh, if they were the kind of people who would go to a convention had the, they had the chance to uh, see it how it was how it was done. They all have probably heard of it vaguely. Oh, they had a tournament. Wow, that's great. Maybe we could do one. No, probably not. And and the, but the people who but after the Berkeley uh, convention of that year. A bunch of people went home to Winnipeg. That's one place they went. Uh, Phoenix, uh, New York, Boston, and said to their friends, "We've got to do this." And their friends said, ah, "Maybe I'd rather read this this book that I just got uh, of so and so. Probably a science fiction book and not even a fantasy book." But eventually, uh, people like the group of people in Michigan State that I was part of, started talking to each other, and the idea soaked in. So in uh, what happened was in, in uh, Halloween of that year, we went out, we university students went out dressed as various uh, science fiction or fantasy characters. And uh, it turned out that every single person who showed up to that that uh, Halloween gathering was in a sword and shield costume. Yeah, Tolkien, Conan, various things. And then people said, hey, this really could be fun because it, they weren't just hearing stories of how I got to go to California. Uh, they were seeing a bunch of people like themselves as they reasonably liked already. And uh, they said, okay, let's do it. And uh, so this was happening in. Uh, in, in Chicago at about the same time. This was happening in uh, Baltimore area about the same time. They were, they were small groups of people getting together, seeing how, whether it was practical and fun to, to do something of this sort. Let's do it again. That's a very common crime. <laughs> well, yeah. Any, any place they actually did it, it caught on. Right. Yeah, sometimes getting people just to show up and try it is the hard part because as soon as they pick yes. up a weapon, they just melt into it. So you've been doing this thing for a really long time. So you must have noticed in the 90s when the sort of historical martial arts scene started to really develop. What was your impression of that? Excuse me, I'm quite, I didn't quite catch that. I saw, What did I see in the 90s? Um, yeah. Well, the historical martial arts scene started to really get uh, moving um, yes. people like studying the treatises and and trying to recreate like specific it, it definitely had an imp- it definitely made an impression uh that that's that there were people intelligent people with organizing skills uh decided to do it do it right see with the sca of course it's rattan combat it, it was it was something that uh was adopted so that it would be fun and it would be reminiscent of actual, of tournament combat in the Middle Ages, but of course done safely. And uh, people in in the 60s and the 70s had a rather limited ability to put on a good tournament. I mean, we, we had a lot of fun and there are cool people doing cool stuff, but we didn't have armor, we didn't know people who made armor. There weren't any. I mean, there were next to none. 
There weren't any armors, no. And uh, we also were doing something that was kind of fakey, in which we chose our monarchs by by the winning of tournaments. That's not something that was actually done in the Middle Ages at all. Uh, <laughs> no. It's uh, it was done by you know done in uh, the 19th century to a certain degree, very small groups of people doing things like that. Uh, but people did people. Okay, people were doing. Uh, what they could do, if they could find a place to have set up a shop, was a miracle. Yeah. And so, uh, now, the thing is, there were plenty of people who wanted to do something with steel swords. Mm -hmm. And that was not something the SCA did. Sure. The SCA, I believe that uh, in Texas, there was a kind of a bit of a conflict or debate about what would be cool to do. Uh, Texas had an SCA groups, but uh, we, the people who wanted, wanted to do actual sword fighting with steel swords, uh, fencing, etc., were not necessarily greeted with uh, great love by the people who had developed this new sport, sure. which was developing very nicely. The rattan combat is very interesting. Uh, but you know it's not the same thing. No. And uh, also, people who were uh, interested in steel combat were not interested in. Uh, uh, they weren't interested in choosing monarchs or having courts. Uh, that I was aware of. I'm an outsider. Right. So, what people were doing was figuring out how you could use steel swords properly. With, with the skills and the techniques that had existed in, say, the 16th century or, or maybe a little earlier and maybe a little later. Right. It was there. Not a lot of it, but it was there. And uh, so they were going to be, the framework was going to be completely different. And so I think there was a bit of a conflict because uh, everybody could have their own opinion about whether you're wasting your time or not doing this other stuff, whatever the other stuff was. <laughs> right. And it was, uh, it was, re was remarkable in the nineties that people were being to find books uh, from the period mm. using, teaching the kind of combat that was actually taking place and say the three musketeers, I should I should mention the movie uh, the '70s movie The Three Musketeers uh, and the Four Musketeers. Oh yes! Oh, that really sure. that yes. really pumped yes. up the interest in fencing. Fantastic, unbelievable movie! What a great movie that is. Yeah, and uh, you could say, oh well, we're going to yes. do something that's better. I think it's my favorite Three Musketeers version. That that's better, more authentic than what the SCA is doing, and they don't appreciate us anyway. They, they want to hit people hard with big sticks. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, you, you wimpy little people, because some of the people who are doing this early steel combat were, were wimpy little people. They were women, <laughs> among other things. And so... Shock horror. Shock horror, yes. Uh, so there... 
And at that point, there is uh, a really large group of SCA people across North America in particular and a few other places. They are people who know about the mimeograph machine. Maybe it's out of date at, at that point. They knew about the Xerox. They knew about how to get a cheap type of... Uh, Reproduction, yeah. Postal oh. classification. Yeah. So they could uh, send them out messages to to people uh, at much cheaper than uh, normal normal stuff. Yeah, normal postal rates. I mean, an awful lot of the work had been done. You know, what the people who are getting into historical uh, combat was quite different. But uh, some of the things that they were tools they were using to create an alternate version of, uh, of combat were already there. They, the people had been chroniclers of kingdoms sitting on newsletters. Some of those people were fencers. Yeah. There were some of those people, whatever category or, or activity you want to talk about, were people who had helped run the SCA already. Yeah. Uh, it took a while to turn this group of people into a large group of people. But you know, it's like two or three st steps had been skipped, which was greatly to the advantage. Yeah. A, of, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of historical martial arts did, did get, a lot of the early sort of major figures in historical martial arts came out of the SCA and had acquired all sorts of skills around, well, not least running a group. Um, from the yeah. SCA. So actually, you know, I think historical martial arts owes a lot to the SCA, really. Yes. But on the other hand, it, uh, there was harassment and <laughs> lack of... Uh, yeah, it wasn't all pleasant. <laughs> la lack of sympathy sure. as well. No, it was... It was uh, but the thing is, is that you, you could start with, uh, with hundreds or thousands of people, some of whom might be interested in... in right in steel sword work and and you could start at that point if you if you had enough people who were finding the contemporary uh, act skills in the past you could turn it into uh, an organized teachable activity right without having to do everything from dead scratch. Absolutely. Uh, now, you're... And uh, so so the thing is, you did have... I, I just say, you did have such people. You did have people who were looking at the source material and, and, and getting people interested in using the source material. A different kind of combat that may perhaps have been a little bit more authentic than uh, what the SCA is doing, you could argue about that, and uh, yeah, there it was. You know, there were smart people involved in in the, the steel. There had been smart people in the SCA as well, but you need a different kind of smarts, really. You know, SCA people, not not all that interested in reading books oh. about okay. the Middle Ages to create. Well, that, that, yeah. I'm, I'm, Go ahead. I'm not disputing your, your, your memory of what it was like in the 70s and 80s. These days, 
there are a lot of really good historians in the SCA. Yes. So I, I think I think the kind of the two communities have learned a lot from each other. And, and oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we've got you know some, some of our some of our best experts yes. in various fields are SCA people now. Um, but I, my my recollection in the nineties was there was those loonies who like clothes and yes. whacking each other with sticks over there doing their thing, and there's us loonies who like uh, putting on fencing masks and poking each other with steel rods. Yes, in a historically authentic manner, as far as we could figure out in this camp, and they they were kind of and maybe unnecessarily separated. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, actually it, the, the separation was necessary. <laughs> okay, you couldn't dismantle what the SCA had created for its own culture, sure. and 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 take up something completely different. Uh, you couldn't do that. You would get a people angry and nothing would exactly. result. So the thing is they kept in a number of places they kept the distance uh, well enough and uh, if people were interested in doing one or both of these activities, I'm talking about mm -hmm. sword work, it was possible to do that. Big advantage. Uh, sometimes problematic, but a big advantage. Okay. Now, you're best known in the historical martial arts world as an expert on the context of knightly combat, so the judicial duel, deeds of arms, and so on. And obviously, everyone listening should just go off and read all of your books on the subject, but how would you like categorize the most, or describe the most important context for a knightly combat in, say, the 14th century? Oh, what, if you are going, uh, are you asking, uh, what's the framework for... Yeah, combats. Well, yes, exactly. What, what, what are the different? I mean, one of the things we have to figure out. What were they trying to do? Yeah. What One of the things we we have to figure out when looking at, say, for example, Fiore, we have to figure out what actual context is this art supposed to work in, and to figure that out, we have to study the various different contexts in which a knight would reasonably have been expected to demonstrate martial prowess. So tournaments and jousts and various other things. So okay, well that that's a pretty complicated question. Yes, it questions is. There. But I, I have faith in let's you. Say, let's say uh, first. Let's say war. Okay, let's say we talk about warfare. Mm -hmm. Warfare uh, is some is going to be a person who's probably part of a military unit. And has a boss or a, a, a lord of some sort organizes the, a bunch of people to fight a battle or besiege a siege a castle or any of that. That's uh, and it could be any number of. I mean, if you do a good job of, as a, a fighter in a military context. You get a lot of reputation out of it because one of the things that people, uh, 14th century warriors have and, and work at is to get a reputation that sets them apart from other people. Now, you can also do the combats which are maybe not as deadly or not quite as serious, but they're pretty, they can be pretty serious, in which... Somebody comes across an enemy or or somebody who's uh, actively involved 
on the other side of a conflict and uh, say, uh, say, I'm, I'm great. What about you? Let's, let's, uh, let, let me give you one of the ones. I'm sure you've read this, uh, this story has in, in the book Deeds of Arms, my book Deeds of Arms. Englishmen are in Portugal or Spain uh, fighting uh, against uh, various uh, people on the other side. They're, they're part of a, uh, an expedition that for the English Duke of Lancaster who wants to become king of Castile. And so he brought a whole bunch of English roughnecks and English uh, uh, warriors to the Iberian Peninsula and tries to get a, a, a real campaign going that will make him king of uh, Castile. Well, it doesn't work out. Uh, everybody's going to go home. So one of the, one of the English fighters... I believe his name is Tristan. Anyway, he's uh, one of them says, I want to go out and fight somebody, and I'm going to do it. And uh, so he uh, gets the agreement of his friends that this would be an appropriate thing for him to do. He wouldn't disgrace them, as I, my, my feeling. That they feel that they wouldn't disgrace him. So they go out, and uh, the, the English... Uh, Challenger goes out and finds somebody on the other side who's uh, willing to take this challenge. Now, in this situation, this is a war that didn't happen. He wants to show that it wasn't his fault you know, yeah. that it didn't happen. He's, he's, he's somebody who is quite capable of doing a great job. And so he, he, he's looking to have his name and his activities recognized. And the people on the other side, uh, a Frenchman on the other side says, well, uh, I, I, I'll be there. And he gets his people on his side to uh, back him up. And so the two of them come out in uh, a, a, some area close to the both military camps, English and French, and uh, uh, they, they fight. They fight uh, not necessarily for deadly with deadly intent, but they're they're going to show the people on the other side and their friends that they are worthy warriors, people you want to have on your side, people who people who are on their their side and who uh, who who's on both both the Frenchman and the Englishman want to show uh, their quality. Uh, they they came they went on the uh, went to war in the, in the Iberian Peninsula because they wanted to show their their quality, and they uh, they fight. They they may well have agreed how many blows they would fight to, or what weapons they would use. There's certain limits agreed upon between these two men. And when uh, they fulfill these limits, these they, they say, that was great, let's go home. And they've done it. They, they've, they've showed their, their quality. Now, you can see that there's a different 
number of different ways this can be done. Uh, jousting, for instance, is a, a pretty important part of acti uh, activity. Jousting uh, is not necessarily exactly combat, but it's really dangerous. Uh, it takes a lot of skill to do it. So it's a combat sport, basically. And uh, it's, it's, it's flashy. Yes, well, people can get killed doing this. Uh, it's it's flashy, and the thing is, of course, it's flashy uh, in a way that uh, anybody who's serious serious warrior of a knightly uh, or lordly class is going to be doing uh, it on horseback. Again, you can get killed doing this, but you probably won't. There doesn't need to be just one winner. It could be that they both look really good, as in this, this case that I'm, I'm citing. They both looked really good. Yeah. So their personal reputations would be both greatly enhanced by the martial display that they put on of prowess. Yeah, the, peop the, the stories we hear of jousts or foot combats are uh, stories about individuals building up their reputation, but they're also building up the army's reputation. Right. Uh, they don't... If you, uh, if you have this particular knight fighting on your side, that says something about your qualities as a commander because someone like that would come and work yeah. for Well, Will a Frenchman Fight is the name of one of my books. <laughs> I love that title because it, it's a series... It's a series of... Uh, uh, well, let, let me give you a rather long-winded summary of this. Yeah, please. Uh, the, the English uh, under the Duke, Earl of Buckingham in the 1380s, early 1380s, are roaring around France wrecking things, trying to provoke the King of France to come out and fight them. And the King of France won't do it. He won't do it because uh, he, remember, he remembers the, the terrific defeats that in his, of his father's time when the English really hammered the French. Poitiers, for example, or Najera in Spain. And uh, the English are very frustrated because the, the, the French have plenty of strongholds that they can just sit in and look at the English going by. And they say, this is not cool. This is not cool. On the other side, people, are, the Frenchmen are saying, this is not cool. <laughs> the king doesn't want us to fight, and we have to obey his orders. Right. Uh, He's but, making us look bad. You know, we could do it. Yeah. We easily. Yeah. Make, and, and the king is, is playing this exactly right, because he doesn't know that he can win. Yeah. You know, he's had armies wrecked. He and his father have had armies wrecked. And... Uh, that that's not uh, what he wants. He wants he he pays a price because people in the north of France and the central part of France are looking at him, looking at the English roaring around and say, "Where's the king? Where are the lords?" This is an issue that comes up quite frequently in the late 14th century, that uh, the nobles uh, are losing their reputation and their claim to being superior because they won't fight. 
Now, there's no, the, the, the French won't fight for a good reason, but it looks really bad. Yeah. And so uh, what happens is, is this non-campaign kind of grinds to a halt. A man uh, comes out from, from a French castle and says, I, I'm so-and-so. I'm here to fight you. I, uh, is, there, is there anyone among you Englishmen who has a lady that he wants to fight for? And the English are looking at this guy, and they've been going for weeks. <laughs> not seeing much in the way of any French people at all. And this, this is where, they, this is where they, they come up with this idea of, will a Frenchman fight? Well, we thought, no. We thought they were just as bad as we like to think they are. But now we have to admit that they, they know something. This guy is actually putting himself forward. He's putting himself forward, just like in the previous story. Yeah, and uh, what happens? What is he, the uh, the Frenchman comes out, and an Englishman comes out. They start a, a combat, and uh, the Frenchman gets wounded in the leg. This is a joust, actually. He gets wounded in the leg, and the Earl of Buckingham, the English commander, says, "Okay, we'll stop here." We'll stop here. We'll bandage up this guy's leg and take good care of him. And we'll find an occasion where we can fight it out. The, uh, the Frenchman is sort of handed over to the English army. And he says, oh, my God. <laughs> Essentially, he says, OMG. <laughs> because he might not ever right. come back from being held in the English captivity. Well, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, people are... Uh, on both the French and English side, and say, "I last, we're not, we're not just a bunch of bums." As people were going to say, they didn't get a chance to fight. We're we're here, ready, willing, and able. In fact, even a Frenchman will fight. <laughs> Fantastic. So, do you have a favorite? So, so I mean, the thing is, is that. So I, I was going to say, is there like a favorite moment for you in in like the history of chivalric combat, which for you sort of epitomizes the ideal of chivalric combat? Would this be one of those moments? This is uh, this is definitely one of those moments. This is a really good moment. There's there's some uh, maybe I'll tell you about the the mine, the Duke of Bourbon in the mine. Okay. Now mine in the 14th century is usually not a place where you dig ore out of the ground. It's a tunnel that gets you inside a, a, a castle. You get a bunch of people to dig a, dig a tunnel, find the right opportunity, and break into the, the castle of your enemies. Right. So, uh, and it's, a danger, it's dangerous. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been in a mine, yeah. an old mine. Not, not the modern mines, which I'm sure are completely different. But in Sudbury, Ontario, and uh, in uh, Cornwall, not Cornwall, Ontario, but Cornwall, the actual Cornwall, have leftover mines that you can go into. And they are tiny. Yeah. They are tiny. You can't properly stand up in them. They're like prisoners' escape tunnels. Yes, they are. Yeah. 
And they people fought in the if they thought it was a, a smart thing to do. They fought in these incredibly tiny tunnels. Now, a, a story that takes place around a, a mine is uh, about the Duke of Bourbon, one of the most important princes of the French uh, royal family in the late 14th century. There's a castle that the Duke of Bourbon wants to take away from a bunch of Englishmen. They are not the best Englishmen in the world. They're uh, outlaws, practically. They've been, they, they've been uh, excommunicated by the Pope. So uh, the Duke of Bourbon wants to have that castle back from these roughnecks. Right. Because it's, they've made so much trouble in the last few years. When nobody seems to be making any progress, they're digging a, they're digging a tunnel and not making much progress. And the Duke says, okay, I'm going to do something about this. I'm fed up with this. These, these bad guys got to go. And so he gets into his armor. He gets one of his uh, retainers into some armor. And uh, they go into the tunnel, which is actually now finished. They go into this mine, and it's finished. The, the, the retainer, the Duke's retainer, makes an announcement saying, who, who will fight? This great man doesn't name him, doesn't say who he is, but he obviously is a, a royal duke. He's got good armor. He's got good skills. He's quite a, got quite a personal reputation besides his political reputation. And uh, so these two guys, the, the commander in the French castle and the duke, Come together, oh, come together and uh, start fighting in this really dangerous, uh, in the mine, difficult environment. Wow. And now, somehow, the people on the outside who are the French can see what's going on more or less in the, the mine. It isn't necessarily a very long mine. I, but he, they can see, and they start cheering for the Duke. Bourbon, Bourbon, Bourbon. And the commander on the other side, uh, the English side, is taken aback. He's taken aback because he's not a very important person. Right. He's not even a knight. He's not, I don't know if he's a, even a squire. He's the se- second in command of this French castle. His boss, his commander, is off wandering around doing something, not getting <laughs> threatened by the English, right. I guess. And uh, the, so the, the French sub-commander stops the, stops the combat and says, is this really before me, the Duke of Bourbon? Is this really him? And the, the Duke's retinue man says, Yes, that's that's the Duke. The French guy, the French commander, this not very important guy, is taken aback because you don't end up, people like him don't end up fighting Dukes. Yeah. And uh, if they do, uh, 
it might be really dangerous because the the people in the English castle are outlaws. Right. They've been excommunicated by the Pope. Now, people of this sort might, if they are defeated, they might be taken captive, they might be ransomed, or they might be hanged. Right. And so... So this the the French commander of the castle takes a daring move, and the move is says, "How about we settle this some other way? If you uh, will knight me, I will hand over the castle to you." Okay. And uh, the duke says, "That's fine with me." Now the the story goes on. The story goes on uh, mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of people in this in the on the English side were really looking forward to attacking this castle. They wanted yeah. to fight in the mine, and so they they started crumbling about that. And so the Duke says to the French guy, "Well, do this tomorrow, and anybody on my side who wants to fight in the uh, in the mine against your people." They have my blessing. Okay. And so this rather dangerous situation turns into a competition uh, that's not and that's not necessarily a deadly one. I don't think anybody got killed uh, in this. And uh, the keys of the castle are handed over to the, to the duke. They they get their fun. They get their fun. And it goes on. The story goes on and on. One of the things that happens is that the people of the district who had done nothing to help themselves against these English uh, roughnecks were are willing to fight, and they 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 do fight. And uh, the the people of the district say, "Okay, there's some more castles, and you guys could you guys under, in the Duke's army could do something about these guys." And the Duke says. Well, what about you? We've got 600 people here. You must have 600 people of your own. But they beg off, make it possible for uh, both the French uh, under the Duke and uh, local people on the French side go out and fight. Anyway, what happens is that the French get uh, a big advantage by having the good Duke's people on their side. They're pros. Right. And one of the things that makes them attractive to the uh, French people of the neighborhood who don't want to do the fighting themselves is that after this combat in the mine, all the guys who were in the in the mine on the French side have got really good reputations, right? And they those those f- f- lazy French think if you get these guys leading an expedition, we can clean up the the, the English garrisons that have been giving us so much trouble. So so some. The uh, the the uh, reputation 
of the Duke's army, which is probably pretty good to start it with because the Duke himself has a great reputation. They've got a much better reputation the day after right. they played for fun in the mine. And this turns into uh, a campaign or a mini campaign that takes care of a military problem. The play, play and real combat are so close together that, that it's uh, right. somebody with a modern appreciation of the difference between war and jousting or or they uh we don't we don't we wouldn't see it that way we just would not see it that way uh, right yeah we'd think of them as sort of separate domains so like a good athlete or a good sportsman isn't necessarily going to be a good soldier yeah yeah but yeah it's, and, i guess uh, it's it's but you know an awful lot of warfare is psychological and if you're if you're intimidated by the names on the other side that's going to that's going to make a big difference to the outcome. Yes, very good point. That's a very good point. Um, okay. Uh, now, whenever I get a, a proper historian on the show, I always ask them, because uh, you know, a lot of people doing historical martial arts are not trained historians. Some of them are engineers, some of them are computer programmers, some are lorry drivers, some are nurses, whatever. We have a yeah. huge range of, sort of um, types of people who practice historical martial arts. So whenever I get a professional historian on... I always ask them, what advice would they give to historical martial artists who are not trained historians, how to go about the historical side of historical martial arts more effectively? What would you advise us to do? Uh, so how can, how can untrained amateurs become sophisticated interpreters? of the material. I guess, yeah. Well, I would say that uh, uh, if you live someplace where there's a really good library that has these books, if you're really daring and hardworking, you might do, you might do that. You know, you might learn uh, the material from the actual books, more modern editions usually. But I would say that the kind of books that are being put out by previous generations of uh, martial artists are going to be a lot easier for the new would-be scholar. I mean, I could. This is a freelance academy press book. They're one of my publishers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're one of my publishers too. That's, uh, yes. And you see these people as, uh, these, the good people are good. Someday you want to maybe take a different step. I mean, I took a bit of a different step when I started writing about tournaments. I, I originally wrote books, a book on, uh, Fifth Century Chronicles, the later Roman Empire. Okay. Which what I needed for that was basically I needed modern French, modern German, English, and uh, Latin. When I decided I wanted to go into saying I, I 
but what what my motivation was is that I, people are talking about doing a more authentic thing, but what does the what did the actual sources say? They actually did, and the way I had to do do that was learn Middle French, the, the French between Old French and Modern French, yeah, which I never never touched. And uh, so I was in the same circumstances as, as the person we're talking about who wants to know as much as possible about what really was done. So uh, getting some of those books from modern publishers, some of which are written by and for the uh, modern context, that's like not a bad place to start. You know, we, 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 we've been hinting about, and I'm sure you talk about a lot, about what kind of books and are available. There's quite a bit now. Yeah. You got to shell out some money. <laughs> well, I, but it's a lot easier. Well, you can just go to the library, as you said, and get them all for free. Yeah. Which actually is, is, is good for everyone because... Well, they, you can if you have a... It depends on how good the libraries are. Sure. Yeah, I, I spent my graduate, graduate years at, at uh, the uh, University of Toronto one of the very best places for medieval anything in the entire world. So, sure. it's nice if you live in uh, Cheyenne, uh, Wyoming. Maybe a little bit tougher. That's when you start shelling out the money because you <laughs> have an alternative there. <laughs> yeah, I would guess. Although, yeah, although I mean, a lot of stuff is available. Yeah, a lot of the even even the sort of historical textbooks, are, a lot of them are available through interlibrary loans, and or you can get ebook editions of them, which are cheaper. So there's there's, there's definitely there's definitely ways around it. But so so your basic advice would be you, you to go to. to the library and read books by people who know what they're doing, so that you so you can see how yes, the historical read. side of things is actually done by people who are trained historians. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. And uh, you're going to have different different amounts of material in different eras. Yes, of course. I mean, I I've looked at uh, the steel the steel sword material, and some of it's really really detailed. Sure. And you can pick up that book and pick up your sword and see how it works. Right. Uh, if you want to know exactly how they did it in the 14th century, it's a lot less yeah. detailed. Yeah. Very true. I mean, like Domenico Angelo in his in the seventeen eighty seven edition of his book, he describes the distance between um, tears and cart as four inches. I mean, he's that specific. He's that detailed. So tears is over here, cart is there, and there's four inches between them. And what I wouldn't give for that level of detail in some of the earlier sources, <laughs> it would save us a lot of work. Yes. Um, yes, but you're screwed. It's not going to happen. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, now, actually, one thing I was wanting to ask you about, Steve, is most folk in the historical sword fighting world um, know about your work on medieval combat. Um, how could they not? But they might not be familiar with your work on 
democracy as a historical phenomenon. So, which is actually said, well, I mean, the, the last few years of in American history might have been very interesting for a, for a student of democracy. Yes, that's for sure. Um, without getting into politics, what what have what are your thoughts on democracy? <laughs> well, the uh, I got interested in doing something. Uh, about the history of democracy because I had a friend, and I still do have a friend, named Phil Payne, co-author of my most important thing on democracy. And we talked about, in the 70s, we talked about democracy a lot. And what we mostly said was that the analysis of the history of democracy was pretty poor stuff. So. Uh, the, I mean, one of the most important, one of the most uh, important analyses of the history of democracy was you start out with the Greeks. Uh, they did some really interesting stuff. Uh, it faded away, and then uh, later on, in what's Coming up to modern times, you have uh, people continuing on from the Greek ideas, and uh, the, then you end up with democracy as a modern reality. But it's Greek, Greeks, early modern modern. And uh, the idea is that uh, those people in the distant past who uh, created a, a sort of democracy, they were special. in a special culture that uh, generated the possibility of more modern democracy. And everybody else was out of the picture. And we didn't buy that. Phil, and I, Phil Payne and I did not buy that. It, it does seem unlikely, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it's really a good idea to read the Greek material. Some, it's, it's not very convincing as an actual model of democracy that would be worked on, worked on it. You know, it's not a great foundation. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not putting down the Greeks, but I'm saying that they, they weren't uh, magic. Right. And <laughs> they weren't magic. Now, in 1989... That's the we, we we the two of us started thinking well what is what is a sensible framework for appreciating the place of democracy in world history? And uh, we wrote an article for the Journal of World History called Democracy's Place in World History and uh, we made the argument that Many cultures had 
some elements that could be called upon as a foundation for democracy in their in their own culture. They didn't have to go to the Greeks to find it. British universities or down Parisian coffee shops and nice. uh, get the unique magic. I, I'm using that word again. The unique magic. They don't have to. They don't have to do it that way because uh, if you look at places that are, have a reputation for democracy, yep. a lot of the times it's kind of not deserved or very flimsy arguments back it up. And uh, then look at par other parts of the world that aren't well known to people who are interested in world history necessarily and say, oh, these people for a, a good long while had uh, these democratic elements in their political and cultural life. And if you're a modern person, we said in 1989, you, sh you should uh, look much more closely at the, the variety of democratic uh, elements and, and see, well, how, how, how did they actually run things? How long did they have a democratic system if they had one? And it, what we said is not we're not claiming like the Greeks. Uh, we're not claiming that the Greeks uh, these the materials uh, are unique, and we're not claiming that they're false either. And people say, "Oh, I mean, look at the history of Germany." Just, just. Uh, Germany is considered to be a advanced country. Yeah. Uh, the cultural achievements are vast. They have a democratic system today, and it works pretty well. But what about the Third Reich? What about this, that, or the other thing? You can go through the history of Germany, which uh, is very fragmented, and say, how did they? How did they get to today's rather enviable position? An awful lot of people would love to have the German system of government. Right. But, uh, on the other hand, you can't. I mean, look at the United States. Since 1989, a lot of things have happened in the United States. Yes, that you might say, you might, as a, a, a modern person, say, well, democracy really is pretty, pretty flimsy stuff. Even the Americans can't do it right. I don't think that either of those stances are are useful. Okay. I mean, just to take one, one, one issue, the issue of norms that's been kicked around recently. When you look at the, the Brexit debate in Britain oh God. a few years back, yes. 
you say, why are these people, uh, specifically thinking of the, the Tories, why are these people so idiotic? <laughs> yeah. You know, they've got a reputa historical reputation of, of and, uh, and one of the things is that you have uh, a certain ruling class in Britain or with some competitive would-be ruling classes. Sure. And people take it for granted that uh, the Brits will come up with a fairly sensible way of doing things. But then Brexit comes along. And these people are all going insane. Yes. You know, people who have the right school, went to the right school and have the right accent, uh, can't do anything right. And, uh, well... That's a pretty fair summation of Boris Johnson's government. Yes, and, and the, the two previous... Right school, right accent, can't do anything right. And, uh, of course, the United States is so close, so close to losing everything. And that isn't necessarily happened yet. It's not necessarily. Uh, we're not out of the woods. I would agree. Yeah, with the United States, the history of the United States, the political history of the United States, is very important to the history of world democracy. But uh, you can't rely on big uh, generalizations. You know, is Roger Williams important or is he not important? If, I don't know if, he, if anybody knows who Roger Williams is. I don't. He's one of the founders of Rhode Island. Oh, right. Yes, I, yes, he, I have that. Somebody who's contemporary with the English Civil War. And, and the English Civil War was important in a variety of ways. But uh, you see the people coming up with modern-sounding ideas about how politics should work in the English Civil War, and then they lose it afterwards. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the existence of Robert William Penn or the, the generals who got together the Putney debates in London and said, everybody should have a vote. You guys running. You guys are fighting the are fighting the king. Okay, we'll continue to fight the king, but let's not just go back. Pretend we can go back at some uh, other time and do it. I mean, you see this in connection with the United States as well. People hope it will go back to normal. Yeah, but what is normal? Is that a realistic way of looking at things? And of course, what we think of as normal now would, is extremely unusual in terms of world history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, what I, okay. what now, I, what I, excuse me, I just want to say one last thing. Yeah, go ahead. Please. What I wanted to do with that article, Phil had wanted to do with that article, was People in, I don't know, where, what country shall we pick on necessarily? People in Bangladesh, 
who might be dissatisfied with the way their government works, and they, they generally are pretty dissatisfied in Bangladesh. But they have elections. They, but it's not magic. It may have been, if you looked at the history of Bangladesh since the partition, I'm sure you could say this is, is uh, something they got from the British. This is something they got from Gandhi or somebody else of that, that caliber. Or, we, or maybe not. Maybe they didn't get it that way. They, they may have gone to school in the elite groups. They may have gone to and read Thucydides, Plato, and, and any, any of a number of other people. Or you could look at the Roman Republic. It's not magic. It isn't magic, and you don't... Right, yeah, just having a democratic institutions doesn't by itself yeah. create democracy or, or create a working version of democracy. Huh. So one of the things that we... I, I, I'm happy about that article is that it's all over the place. People are reading it. You go, if you look at academe.edu, <laughs> it's, it's getting around. Excellent. Not bad for an article written 40 years ago. Yeah. Oh, 32 years ago. Excellent. Okay. Um, I do have one, one last question for you, Steve. And if you, I mean, you clearly care a lot about history and how it's taught. So if you had some gigantic budget to spend improving the public's understanding of history, how would you spend it? What would I do? Yeah. That's a very, that's a very difficult I would, sometimes people say you, people who are re reforming education for the reform to improve society, like France is a great example of this. They started out with the idea of education and ended up with all sorts of good and bad things. People in France built institutions that specialize in uh, various areas of importance. And uh, they tend to bring the best people they can imagine together in these institutions. So you, if you uh, ha think that medieval history is important to the history of France, you get the best medieval historians you find, and you put them in this institution and have them lay down the law, yeah. tell everybody else what's right. This is <laughs> this is this is there are problems with that. Tick off some French people, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> okay. and and I, I don't think that getting all the best people in one spot in Oxford, in Stanford, or any of a number of other places, is necessarily the best way to going. Okay. Uh, I this is I my teaching. Most of my, the teaching I've done since I got my PhD 
has been to been in uh not not it hasn't been in elite schools i i spent 25 years at nipissing university which i had never heard of before i applied for my job there and nobody else has ever heard of it either okay uh and uh we had ordinary students by and large i loved it i loved teaching those students and i think i did a very good job of 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 teaching them i made a, a contribution i don't think uh, one, one one canadian historian about 30 years ago said we canada needs some real universities he said and uh he is specifically thinking it all of Canadian, almost every Canadian university, with maybe two or three exceptions, substandard, uh, and, and you needed you needed to go the elite route, recruit the elite, okay. and te- and get the elite students to be taught by those people. When I was teaching at Nipissing University, I did not have that luxury. They had some pretty smart people actually, and. Uh, we had some really good classes, and some of the some of the t- teachers at Nipissing University in the last twenty years have been fabulous. That's because uh, there are no jobs <laughs> for for uh, academics. So you, you you could if you were at Nipissing and you wanted uh, to, uh, the best, some of the best teachers in such and such. A field you might actually get them, right? Because they, Harvard's full. <laughs> yeah. And so, what I think is that it, it, what when it comes to academic reform, I don't want all the elite guys stuck in one place, right? Doing their thing. I think if you, I think the universities of say the '60s, not so bad. If you could spend the money teaching reasonably ordinary students who are motivated, and give them the good libraries or the good labs that they need. Not not the not necessarily the best ones at the face of the earth. That would be nice, but just good. Yeah. And uh, and and you have to make sure that those people were not too worried about their funding being cut off. Right. Uh, the the amount of the percentage of funding that people have enjoyed. In recent years, is pretty worrisome. Sure. So I would say, give. I have lots of academic friends who are. Send. Yeah, give give uh, stable funding to universities that uh, attract good students. 
and just let them do their thing. Okay. That's a don't that doesn't mean necessarily doing exactly what was done in the sixties or the nineties or now. It's but what has happened is that uh it's become much more precarious. I mean the idea that that my colleagues, some of my colleagues and many of my colleagues at Nipissing University could be teach anywhere, do research anywhere, is something that I don't think is is appreciated. And it's an unfortunate situation because uh, there will be a few people who are really good who get special funding because the Minister of Education once has a, a, a pet theory mm. And the people take that money and they, you do something really worthwhile with it. That's that's okay. That would be good. We don't have to. Have, it's not magic. You don't 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 put don't create Fort Knox. Yeah. So so your basic position is is that you should um, rather rather than putting all your support behind the the stars, you you put it behind. The, the general run of students and yeah. thus create a kind of rising tide that will lift all boats. I think that would be a good idea. Well, okay. I think I think that uh, if people were, you wouldn't have to have a lot of them either. I mean, if it if it worked, if this scheme worked, sure, there would be more of these universities built every so often, and and you might end up with a really good post secondary post-secondary system. Sure. Now, there's one further thing about this is that you can't can't think that it's magic. Right. And how you would make sure that people didn't start acting like it was magic and would just do the work, that, that would be something that you have to pay attention to. So you know, that absolutely applies to historical martial arts. Yes. It's not magic. You just have to do the work. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we got, got the right two people talking today, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, it's, you have to do the work. Right. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Steve. That's been a, a real education talking to you. And nice to finally meet you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Stephen Mulberger. You can find the episode show notes, including a complete transcription, at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I would like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It really does help me keep the lights on and let me know that people out there are actually listening. If you would like to join us for behind-the-scenes content and to submit questions for future guests, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And if you're into swords and audio, you should definitely go along to guywindsor.net forward slash silver, where I am producing audiobook versions of Silver's Paradoxes of Defense, in both modern and original pronunciation, 
Previous episode included samples of those audiobooks, so you might skip back and have a listen to that if you're interested, or just go straight to guywindsor.net forward slash silver, which will take you to the crowdfunding campaign that is currently running. We hit our goal in under 24 hours, so there's clearly other people like you out there, but the more money we raise, the more possible it becomes to produce other similar works. So go along to guywindsor.net forward slash silver if that sounds like a good idea to you. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Claire Weems about Kunsters Funkels. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. Claire is an instructor in Vancouver and we have a delightful chat about her school, how she runs it, um, neurodivergent teachers and neurodivergent students and all sorts of other interesting things. And if you want to know what Kunsters Funkels in Blech. I can't even say the damn thing. Bloody German. Um, but if you want to know what that means, then you need to tune in next week. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have a minute, please do rate it or even review it, telling the whole world how wonderful you think The Sword Guy podcast is. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. <laughs>